Hi, friends. No, we can't go home. God's word is better. God's word is better. I don't know if I'll do it better, but God's word is better. But that's exactly why we're here, isn't it? To sing and to proclaim how great God is. So open up your Bibles today, and we're going to do that together, to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, really from a structural standpoint, Psalm 133 is quite short and simple. Begins with a very simple proposition, explains that proposition with two short illustrations, and then concludes as simply as it began. Just three verses, so we should be able to get out of here in, what, five minutes, right? (laughs) Maybe somebody else. The theme of the psalm is unity. Pastor Mike and Mr. Richard, and even Seth and his song this morning has presented to us a very crystal clear reality of the unity that is provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is so great, he is so marvelous. And as simple as the theme is, we know from our own experiences with our friends and family and co-workers that unity is not quite as simple as it sounds. This simple psalm makes a big point. The kind of point that uh, unity is, unity's quality, frankly, is a correlation or correlation to the quality of our Savior. In other words, it really is correlative. It, 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 it has, um, as good of a unity is only as good as our Savior. And if we lack unity, it might be because we lack being in our Savior. And so that's really what we're going to look at today. Psalm 133. Let's go and let's ask the Lord to uh, ask the Lord to bless this time as we go into his word. Father, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to know your word to entrust it to our lives in such a way that when it speaks, we will do as we come to this crystal clear message, simple one, that you bring unity to your people, that there's a relationship between the kind of unity that we have and the kind of relationship that we have with our Savior. And I pray that today as we investigate those two simple truths that it would be abundantly clear that we know the Lord Jesus Christ and we enjoy the sweet unity in Him. I do pray for those who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ and may find the kind of unity that we will describe that the psalmist sings about as strange or as really quite unattainable. I pray that you would help those individuals today, underneath the sound of my voice, know the person that brings unity to all mankind with the God of heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do a great work now before us, through your word and the spirit who dwells us. In Jesus' name, amen. So you're around the Thanksgiving table, and it's a time of celebration. It's a time of great happiness until that family member drops the big political bombshell. Right? And there hasn't been any of that around Thanksgiving tables lately. Fourth of July picnics coming up. Birthday parties celebrations of independence, whatever it is. Even the times meant to bring us together, maybe we can say especially the times meant to bring us together, can often highlight the tremendous differences that the people sitting around the table share. Weddings can bring this out, can it? 
Funerals can really bring this out, especially when money kind of comes to the table. It's quite interesting, and I've had the opportunity to be a part of many of our church family funerals, fortunately, in the Lord, and unfortunately had the privilege of trying to share the gospel with many families who do not know the Lord. And I can tell you that money is a big, divisive boulder in the room, as you probably know. This was true as a Jew who was instructed to make pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem three times a year, as our psalm in its context, a psalm of ascent, has. A lot of time for family gathering, but a lot of time to find plenty to disagree about. We can go pretty early into our Old Testament to find Abraham and Lot, realizing that, hey, it's really good that we spread out. Resources are scarce. People are going to start fighting. And so they decide that it's best for their families and peoples not to live together. Indeed, for the Jews... In a more arid desert environment, tensions could run high if families had to compete for the same scarce resources. And so my point is this, by way of introduction, sometimes when we read our Bibles, like we're going to read here in a second, in Psalm 133, we take for granted that, that when there's an issue brought up that's crystal clear, like unity, that there really is no tension or no, no struggle for this fight. In fact, even Mr. Richard in his comments regarding our singing today says that we have to strive for, we have to fight for the maintenance of the unity that the Spirit provides. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Spirit tells us that. And so, though this psalm is clean in its black and white text, celebrating the realities of unity for God's people, it really is a lot more complicated than that. This year has really, quite frankly, shown us that, hasn't it, a little bit? Things that didn't seem so complicated in the past, like masks and vaccines and social distancing, and, and, and whatever else was just thrust upon us in various levels, you could easily become a divisive issue. It certainly has been for our nation. And I can tell you that the elders of this church spent a long, 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 long time discussing, striving, Maintaining to keep the unity that the Spirit produces. And so let's read Psalm 133 in all of its verses. It's a song of ascents by David, or of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. So we're talking about unity today, and the question I want to ask us very quickly on the onset is what kind of of unity are we really talking about? Because I think you'll agree that as we really look at this passage, we can see some qualities of unity, like it's good and it's pleasant. And that, that reality of good there and pleasant, our, our, our translation really helps us with the fact that there's probably a moral uprightness. It's good. It's just simply good. It's right. That's the kind of unity we're talking about. It's pleasant. It has the excellence not only of morality, but it has the excellence of aesthetic. It's pleasing. It's beautiful. So what kind of unity are we talking about? What kind of unity is specifically being celebrated 
here in God's word. And as we were to, if we were to page through the Old Testament and even the New Testament today, we would understand that there is, there is quite, quite frankly, folks, a, an incredible contrast in the scriptures about a unity that ought not be celebrated, but that is celebrated by mankind. If we had time and we don't, we could turn to Psalm 2, and you can put that in the margin of your Bible, that, that, that the world is rising up and wants to shake their fists at God, all of them, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the kings, all the nations, there is no exception there. Romans 1 talks about the reality that we are enemies of God if we are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the rallying cry outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the rallying cry for anyone that is not a God believer, a person in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Tower of Babel was probably the premier, maybe the foundational instance, wasn't it, of a people railing together against the Lord Jesus Christ and his, against God and his anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, the world is stuck. If I could bring it down to a youth pastor illustration, the Lord is stuck in middle school. The word, excuse me, the world. What did I say, the Lord? The world is stuck in middle Jesus was never in middle school. He, I mean, we got 12th grade and boom, he's or 12-year-olds and he was, you know, he, he went past that. The world is really stuck in middle school, though. And nothing against middle schoolers in the room. I was one, thankfully, not anymore. One, I have evolved. And, uh, you know, in middle school world, everyone has to dress the same, right? Everyone has to look the same. Everyone has to talk the same. We have to like the same things. And if you don't, that's the end of the world. If you're not up on the current lingo, if you're not up on the current dress, if you don't know the current shows and the current music and the current, oh, did you see that tweet that went viral? If you haven't seen the tweet that went viral or whatever platform middle schoolers use, they don't probably use Twitter because it's too old, but you're not in the cool group and your whole world is shattered. And truth be told, middle schoolers, most adults do not graduate from middle school world. Because they too like people to think like them and look like them and, and dress like them and drive like them. I was in, in and outside of Chicago this past week, and there's a way to drive in Chicago. <laughs> and it is not like our beautiful country rural roads just south of us. People don't let you go. If you let people go, the whole city will go before you can go. <laughs> they like to drive the same. So you go to certain parts of the country, and you, you learn very quickly that really rude driving here is survival <laughs> in other places. I want to call that kind of unity. The thinking the same, having the same ideology, all these, all these kind of Checkboxes of political correctness, cheap unity, pseudo-unity, fabricated unity. But it's unity, quite frankly, that the world demands. Think like me or else. And it seems that from one perspective, you know, on issues like vaccines or immigration or whatever the political thing is at the moment, it can either unite or divide us, but but just think about how quickly those issues change. They're never solved, probably, but they change. They don't last. They're fleeting, temporary. And there is something much greater to unify around. There is someone who will live forever to unify around. And today, more than ever, we must be disciplined to unify around the things that will last into eternity. And that is the song here that we have this morning. So really, we could ask on the outset, why are you here this morning? And why do you enjoy the unity of this place? My friends, it's 
at, at, at the beginning of this message. It is not because we think the same on some of these issues. It is not because we tend to dress the same. Now, praise the Lord, I think we have more uh, racial diversity in our church than our com surrounding community does, right here in the, in the very uh, specific mentor community. But it's not because many of us have the same kind of skin color. Obviously, that doesn't unite us. Why are we here? And what unifies this church? Well, the psalmist makes the distinction up front that it's not just any kind of unity. It is a specific kind of unity. And the church has a great unity, a unity that will last forever because we have a great Savior, a Savior who will last forever. And He, and He alone, is our rallying cry. He is the one that we unify around and in. And so that doesn't shock us, but... I think we'll see just how wonderful it is, how good and how pleasant it is as we review this psalm together. So first of all, let's look at the characteristics of this unity. And as I've mentioned already, it, it's good and it's pleasant. Uh, but I want us to see outside of that that it is pursued. It must be pursued this morning. Mr. Richard alluded to that fact in Ephesians chapter 4. And here in verse 1, the psalmist says, Behold! That's just not a filler word. This is a word of surprise. This is, this is a word of, Whoa, I, I rounded the corner and I thought something was going to be there, and it's not. Something much better is. And what is that, rounding the corner here? Unity is good, but, but the psalmist says, How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. How good. Unity is a struggle, frankly. As the Israelites are, I already mentioned, this is a song of the sin, as they're marching up to Jerusalem, they're rehearsing this psalm along with Psalm 120 through 134, the Psalms of Ascent. They're ascending to the temple, and they are striving at unity not getting in the way, someone slower than me, whatever it is at that moment. This is a song that is reminding them, wow, the unity that we share is remarkable. It's good. And the construction here, behold, how? This is an interjection. Behold, followed by an interrogative. How good? And that really stresses the fact that, that the kind of unity that's being discussed really is not often true for God's people. Folks, it's, it's not often true. And I think I'm talking to the wrong church this morning, but it's not often true. Praise the Lord that, that I think, by and large, we are a unified people in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But you know what that amen represents? I appreciate that, Rick. I found the button Pastor Tim uses. <laughs> you know what that amen represents? That amen represents a lot of, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That amen represents a lot of overlooking somebody else's personality. Because I've got a personality too. That amen look, uh, rep uh, represents understanding, oh man, that person must have had just a really rough morning. That amen represents, I probably wouldn't go about it that way, but that person is a brother and sister in the Lord. Amen. It's a lot of striving together. And so, I want you to consider the drama of this psalm. It's, as I mentioned before, it's so clean and it's black and white text, but unity, my friends, is so messy. It takes a lot of work. It takes tears. It takes a lot of looking at the mirror, doesn't it? And saying, wow, I, I'm really not as good as I thought I was. Amen. <laughs> Pastor Tim must have a remote. 
because I did not push the button that time. Oh, okay. I appreciate that, Rick. It was for me, too. That's why I felt instantly convicted. I mean, these psalms were sung, you know, on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, commemorating the feasts and booths of the, the festival of, of tabernacles and the feast of booths. And, and this commemorated God's care and provision during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Do you think unity got messy during that time? And they're singing about the unity that they enjoy because of their Lord. And probably one of the most trying times that you could imagine as a people wandering around aimlessly in a desert. They got so frustrated, they complained about God's provision. They murmured. They wanted to rebel against Moses and kill him. The very nature of these psalms elicited a strong historical memorial of what God's people endured together before entering the promised land. These songs were an important lesson on common history that unites. It's a, it's, a, it's a teaching song. It's much like the star-spangled banner for us. We're going to be getting into 4th of July. I was excited. I bought a new flag to put outside my house. I put it out like four weeks before Memorial Day. And I'm just going to leave it there until it fades, probably. And so we're going we're gonna to hear a lot of patriotic music and see a lot of patriotic things this 4th of July. And as citizens, it commemorates for us the defense of Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor during the War of 1812, the Star-Spangled Banner. While our national anthem elicits a memory of our country's struggles, it took quite some time for the song to be codified as our national anthem. Hundreds, I think 150 to 100 years, something like that. It took six bills in Congress. This was before the days of partisanship, when things usually went along pretty well. It took six bills in Congress. The first five were rejected because, quite frankly, the song was just too hard to sing. It's a hard song to sing. That's why all those professionals who really can't sing real well anyway, they flub up. And they miss it. Did you know that that's why a lot of them lip sync, lip sync, lip sync it? They record it ahead of time? Kind of like what I'm doing with my sermon right now so I don't mess up too much? Oh. They sing it ahead of time and, and play it and then just pretend they're singing it because they know they're probably going to mess up. You know, 20 out of the, one out of 20 times that they recorded it, they finally got it right. It's really hard for the average person to sing. In fact, Richard Armour poet of the last century quipped this. He said, in an attempt to take Baltimore, the British attacked Fort McHenry, which protected the harbor. Bombs were soon bursting in air, rockets were glaring, and all in all, it was a moment of great historical interest. During the bombardment, a young lawyer named Francis Off Key wrote the Star-Spangled Banner, and when, by the dawn's early light, the British heard it sung, they fled in terror. <laughs> it's hard. But it reminds us of a great time in our nation's history, a time that, quite frankly, many had to pay for at a tremendous cost. And it rallies us together. This song probably was much easier to sing for the Jew, and it rallied them together in the Lord. But while our nation's uh, while our national anthem is notoriously hard to sing, right, it is a reminder of our freedom, just like this song is a rallying cry for God's provision. And it is also a reminder, a characteristic of unity around and being in God's people. Being in God's people. Brothers dwell together in unity. Now most of us, most of the time we see brothers dwelling together in Unity in our Hebrew Bible, in our Old Testament, we usually see that in relationship to familial realities. And that certainly could be the case here. This could be talking about, oh, you know, the wonderful, good, marvelous, pleasant unity we have as a, as a family as we meet each other, as, as these festivals and as these uh, feasts tended to be kind of a time for the families to get together, right? Everyone's got to get to Jerusalem anyway. We're all rallied together. Oh, there's, you know, Uncle Ned, whatever. You know, good to see you, Uncle Ned. Um, but, you know, this, there's no reason to rule out that 
that not only is this talking about the familial, the, the, those who are related together, but this is talking about the nation as a, as a family in, in God. The national identity that Israel had because God was their father. The unity that God's people enjoyed was a rallying cry, and it was the ubiquitous nature of the next two verses that really, I think, help support that. And we're going to see these here in a little bit. There's two pictures that really tend to, to, to communicate that this was a national identity, not just a, a familial identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of them being oil, and the other one being dew. We'll see that here in a little bit. But historically, we see some Remarkable unity in God's people. You know, at their beginning, God treats them as one family, right? And why does he do that? For instance, you know, you think about Pharaoh's oppression, right, in Exodus. And if, if you ever read through Exodus and, and you underline and you highlight often repeated phrases and words, you're going you're gonna to hear and, and, and underline God's people, God's people. And I hear their cry, a, a group of people with a singular identity of being oppressed and needing deliverance when God says to Moses to tell Pharaoh what? Let my people go. History is clear that oppression is a strong galvanizing force. And Israel was one because their cry was the same. That's my point. Their cry was the same. They had the same struggles, the same oppressor, and the same oppression. The whole Exodus experience is predicated on the fact that God knew the groanings and the cries of his people. And he said, I am the Lord your God. So we could say that a look at Israel's history reinforces that often Israel is one because of the circumstances that push them together and really push them to the Lord. Right? The wilderness, the exodus, the wilderness, the captivities all demonstrate this fact. Even the leadership's ultimate rejection of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, was an unfortunate rallying cry for Israel. But what I want us to understand is that this psalmist isn't necessarily stating that these galvanizing struggles are the common denominator that really brings them together. In other words, the unity of God's people isn't solely based on the oppression and the historical struggles that they shared. It's really not necessarily... Uh, the fact that they have the same kind of moral set of values or, or that they have the same thinking. The kind of unity that is so good and so pleasant is found in their God, Yahweh. And we're going to see that the New Testament really celebrates the practical results of this kind of unity as we close the psalm this morning. But unity that cannot be fabricated based on, again, a bunch of checkboxes, thinking right, thinking the same thing, wanting the same thing, but unity that is based ultimately for us in faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's surprisingly good and, and pleasant because it's not based on man's preference. It's not based on even man's common shared uh, historical identity. It's, it's really based on God. So Israel had to be reminded just how good and how pleasant their unity really was because they often manufactured their own unity. I want to just list a few things, okay? So hold on here with me. Moses ascends Mount Sinai to receive the, the giving of the law, right? And what happens when they come back down, when he comes back down? What happens? What, what, what right away happens? They've got a golden calf and they're worshiping it. You see how easy it is? I mean, they just went through the Exodus. Right? The most powerful nation in all the world. 
And God says, let my people go, and God's people are gone. They just witnessed this whole Red Sea thing, the plagues. I mean, come on. Moses is gone for, what, three days or something? Not even? And Aaron is coerced to melt all the gold and form a calf. It's really easy. It is really easy. It is really easy. We are prone to wander, aren't we? We are prone to fabricate unity. That's what they did. They fabricated unity in the very figure of a golden calf. And folks, we've got to be careful today that we do not fabricate unity. Because that kind of unity won't last. That kind of unity is burnt up like dross. Later, they rebel against Yahweh and send out, remember, 12 spies. Ten were bad and two were good. Only to fabricate unity. They try to rebel against God. And instead of going into the promised land, they try to kill Moses. And so they have to wander aimlessly for 40 years. Under the direct rule of God, Israel rebels seven times, and we have the judge cycles. I'm just kind of think through redemptive history here a little bit. In our Old Testaments, they have the sin cycles, and Israel is delivered, and then unified, and serving, and then they go back to their sin. Even under the kings, Israel's unity is often fabricated to the point where there's a divided kingdom, and then no kingdom. All throughout Israel's history, there were times of truly understanding divinely produced unity, but all too often, and really, if we were to underline the pages of our Old Testament, too often, and the predominant reality is they tried to fabricate their own kind of unity. Sadly, that's why the psalmist articulates, I think, just how special just how surprising real unity in Yahweh is. Because they knew it in their history, that it was too easy to settle for something much less. So unity cannot be fabricated. It cannot be from human effort. Human ideals change, thinking alike, political correctness. The human propensity for unity will not last. And boy, does our world want to be unified around something, doesn't it? And there's all kinds of competing interests on what it is that we should unify around. And some of it, folks, can be really, really good. But the psalmist wants us to know that's not the point for God's people. It never has been. In the Old Testament, it never will be. It is not the point. It's like pouring a concrete sidewalk with no preparation. I don't know if you've ever gotten a couple bags of quick read and said, oh man, my, one portion of my sidewalk I need to fix. The city's you know, out against me. Well, you know, all right, there's just some gravel, some weeds. It looks like I can just pour a nice little inch concrete slab right there. You know how many winters that will last in northeast Ohio? I mean, concrete, you've got to have a thick base of gravel. And then you've got to have a nice big four-inch slab with reinforcements throughout it so that it won't crack. But our, the world is just trying to just pour this, this facade all over the place of unity. And my friends... It is cracking, and it will not last. Amen. So are we unified? Because unity is not agreeing on every single detail. Unity is not preference in color, in food, whatever. Unity is not my way or the highway. Unity is even, it's not even that there is just one idea, and it's best, and let's go and find it. Because we're all prone to error. When the Holy Spirit asks the question, brothers, are you dwelling in unity to us this morning? He is asking you, who 
in you is producing the unity that you enjoy. And the true test of unity is not when everyone agrees. That's not unity. In fact, the best way to know we have unity is when there are disagreements and we can survive the bond that keeps us. If the Holy Spirit that produces such unity, uh, if it is the Holy Spirit that produces such unity, what will always be the result or the product of unity? Not the same preference. Right? Not the same kind of personality, but always the same goal. God's glory. And it is God who anoints. It is God who gives the due. And it is all for his glory. And so we're going to transition now into the second verse and the second point. So we saw the characteristics of unity. That it has to be pursued. Right? But it also is a reality that there's a source to our kind of unity that we enjoy. And Yahweh is the source of this unity. It's not common struggles or likes or dislikes. It transcends all human rallying points. It is really the fact that Yahweh is the source of their unity, and he is the source of ours. Verse 2 says, this good unity. And verse 2 says, it is. And I believe that it is, grammatically, is not referring to to dwelling together in unity it is really referring to its, its, its referent is how good and how pleasant this unity is and so this it is this good and pleasant unity right, is the quality right, that demands that God's God is the producer of that unity. The fact that it is so good and so pleasant is the reality that God is the source of this kind of unity. Verse 2, it is like precious oil upon the head. It is like precious oil upon the head. It is like the dew of Hermon. Those are two illustrations that we'll see that really start to unpack the reality that the unity that is being talked about here is really unity Produced by God Himself. And so there's a visible testimony of this unity. There's a visible testimony of this unity. That's the picture of this precious oil. Now, for us, that's not really a helpful picture. So I need to help maybe explain that a little bit. Um, so this oil, right, in the Old Testament is really referring to here in Exodus 29, the first place that we have such a usage. Um, but it was really used throughout the Old Testament for the priest or the king to anoint them, to really show, demonstrate in an outward visible sign that this was God's man. This was God's, that this man had God's blessing, that this man was anointed for God's work. He was blessed for God's work. And so it was a very concrete sign of God's blessing. In Exodus 29, as I mentioned, Aaron and his sons and priests were anointed by Moses, and Moses was given instructions to consecrate and bless Aaron and the priests. So understand what the psalmist is saying when, he's, when he says, you know what, this unity is so good and it's so pleasant. It is like, it's a picture here of precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robe. He's, ta robe, he's talking in very vivid terminology, very specific, specific terminology, very special, a very special picture that God's anointing is reserved for the priest is now being expanded for those who enjoy such unity. It's now being unpacked for the entire nation, frankly, to know this wonderful unity and the source that God brings this unity. Now, that's remarkable because this anointing of oil carried with it not only a great responsibility, being a priest, mediating between God and man, right, but it also had great authority as priest. 
But the emphasis isn't necessarily on those two things. The emphasis is on the third thing that this oil primarily represents, and that is God with him. This man had oil. Aaron had oil dripping down his face all the way to his robes. And that depicted that God's presence was with him, that God's blessing, therefore, was on him. That is true for the people here that enjoy unity. You know, this privileged position, this, this oil, came at a great cost, we find in Exodus 29. Because it wasn't just oil, right? What do we read there? It is like the precious oil. Now, that often indicates that this oil was perfumed. And so this perfumed oil had a second task to it, and it would, it would cleanse in a very arid, dry, uh, hot, sweaty, dirty environment. It would cleanse the wearer. You know, it's the same concept of us trying to put deodorant on. Most of us probably all put deodorant on today because we don't want to cleanse out the room this morning. Right? And, and some of you, you know, you, you still kind of spray all kinds of stuff on your body even after deodorant. Why? So that you can be, so that you can seem clean. And some of you could have cheated this morning and not even showered and seemed clean because we have all these perfumed things. But this oil served two purposes. It was anointing, but also represented the, the cleansing reality that Aaron and his sons, his priests, were, were cleansed to do the work God had given them. And this is helpful to unpack. We won't turn there, but Exodus 29, the same location where, where God instructs Moses to anoint Aaron and the priests to do his work. What follows is startling. What follows is basically a description of what the priest, what Aaron is to do. And he is, after he is anointed with oil, he is to go to a ram and it is, it is to lay his hand on that ram's head. Signifying that the sins will be transferred to that sacrifice. Now, we understand from a New Testament perspective that, that that was never the case, but it was a picture of the sacrifice that will come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the priest would transfer, would symbolize that transferring of sins, of his, of his sins to this sacrifice. And it was a graphic substitutionary picture. And then the animal was sacrificed. And then you know what was, what was told by Moses to do? Aaron would then have to take that blood and splatter it every single place in the tabernacle. You know, often we have this nice picture of a tent. My friends, that tent was dripping with the blood of sacrifice. Picturing the gross cost of sin. Now why in the world would God have Moses anoint Aaron with oil only to have blood thrown everywhere in the tabernacle? What's the point? The psalmist understood that because of God's blessing instead of blood running everywhere oil is running everywhere. And it is perfumed oil. It is a reality of cleansing. And notice, it's coming down on Aaron's beard. It's coming down on the edges of his robe. So I want you, for a second, let's play this little trans-dispensational game with me for a second. All right? Put yourselves in the shoes. Well, not trans-dispensational, but we're, we're kind of crossing. We're, we're mingling dispensations here, all right? So this is kind of, it'll be fun. This isn't good theology, but it is what it is. Put yourselves in the shoes of a Jew during the Levitical system, all right? As you arrive to church this morning... To worship, you walk up to the glass doors that Mrs. Bonima has cleaned a thousand times because there's so many little kid fingerprints, only to find animal blood splattered almost on the entire length of that window where you can't even see Les, who's standing on the other side waiting to greet you this morning. 
and you walk in and you see blood dripping down the walls of the church right next to the nursery. And boy, if we had that, we wouldn't have any nursery worker issues because we wouldn't have anybody really leaving their kids in the nursery. It's probably good that that's not the case this morning. And you turn the corner only to begin to smell the burning of flesh and incense, but in this picture, according to the psalmist, it's not only the priest who's walking around cleansed with perfumed oil dripping on their face, but it's every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And though there's this awful bloody picture everywhere you go, and there's these smells that are wafting everywhere as, as, as Miss Virginia passes by you, and as Jamie Knutson passes by you, and as Tim Lining passes by you, and as Rick Trevisano amens over there in the corner, you, 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 you stop, cease, you, you, it's the, the, the smell of burnt flesh ceases for a little bit, and you, you get the wonderful aroma of perfumed oil. That's the, that's the kind of picture that the psalmist is painting. That every single individual in the Lord at Grace Church of Menor is anointed and blessed and responsible and carries with them great significance. Each one has had their sins transferred to Christ, their sacrificial lamb. And the only one who can take away our sins. We walk around today not with oil on our faces. Probably, thank goodness, I don't think that would be very comfortable for most of us. It would make driving hard and very hazardous with a slippery driving uh, steering wheel. We don't walk around with oil, but we walk around bearing the fruit of the Spirit who indwells us. And the unity we have is so precious because it is so costly. And I want us to understand another component to how we understand unity being sourced in Yahweh. It's, it's, a, it's a ubiquitous sign. It's, it's an all-encompassing sign here of provision. I mean, we see that with the oil running down Aaron's beard. It's not just the beard, it's Aaron's beard. And we see it running down his face and running down, soaking his robes. It's literally encompassing all of him. But also, look at this. Verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. You know where Hermon is located? That's a mountain. It's the biggest mountain in Israel. That's located in the north. You know where Jerusalem is located? It's a small little hill, mountain. It's located in the south. And so what's interesting is the psalmist is saying, the dew of Hermon is coming down upon the mountains of Zion. They're, they're, God is providing this amazing dew. And remember, we're talking about a place that doesn't get much rain, but can be satisfied, that can thrive on the dew that God provides. Who provides the right temperature and the right humidity? God does to provide that kind of dew. And he does that blanketing Israel like a father enveloping his son or his daughter. It is an intentional reminder of God's blessing. Look at this. So not only is it uh, uh, a sign of, 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 of God's blessing everywhere, but, but it's intentional. The psalmist is very clear. Up until this point, you may say, Pastor Steve, I don't see God's name. I don't see Yahweh's name and, and the indication that Yahweh is the one producing the psalm, uh, this, this, this amazing unity. Are you just making this up? It sounds good, but where is it in the text? Look at this. He says it three times. And don't forget, this is a song of ascent. But what does the psalmist say three times contrary? What is coming down? It is like oil coming down. Coming down on the edge of his robe. You see that? It is like do what? coming down. My friends, don't miss the beautiful reality of Hebrew poetry here. As the Jew is to go up, to ascend up to their God, to the temple. This is a graphic reminder that blessing, all blessing is sourced from the God that they're going up to. And he is raining it down on them. 
so it's an intentional reminder. It's an intentional reminder. We have seen the characteristics of unity. The psalmist has made that clear. The source of unity is Yahweh. But now I want us to turn in conclusion to the results of unity. The results of unity. Unity is not humanly produced. We already see that. We've already discussed that. It is divinely decreed. Verse 3 says, For there the Lord commanded the blessing. The reason Israel had such blessing and unity was simple, because God commanded it. That's clear when the psalmist strikes the chord at the end of the psalm. There the Lord commanded. Even God's people cannot manufacture the kind of unity that the psalmist is speaking about. And again, we tend to try to manufacture that kind of unity through personalities and interests and ambitions. But God is the one who manufactures this unity. And so there are a lot of things that can distract us. Right? You think about the uh, political and social efforts. And a lot of those can be very good. I believe very deeply that every human life is sacred. I believe that God created two genders and only two genders. I believe that God clearly defined marriage and he clearly has a role for the home. But my friends, that is not the church's rallying cry. It just isn't. Because all of those issues existed at the time of the church's founding. What is the church's rallying cry? It's in the pages of the New Testament. It is the very gospel that we are to take to the lost. Because it is not those things that will ultimately bring about unity in this place or anywhere in the world. Having the right answer to any of those things will do very little. But having the right answer to who is Jesus to you will be all the difference and will make all the difference in this lost and dying world. So it's not an option. And it's not open for interpretation this morning. Unity is a direct result of loving, learning, and worshiping God according to His Word. There, the Lord commanded it. It's commanded. And it's therefore a result of obeying God and His Word. And unity is a tangible manifestation of the presence of God. We see the oil representing the, the literal physical blessing that God had for Aaron and the priests. It was a sign that God was with them. We see that dew is the very tangible reality of God's blessing. So both oil and dew are reminders that God's presence is always linked with blessing for God's people. So where unity exists in God's people, there is a blessing because Unity is the outward manifestation that God is there. And we know that God is everywhere. But God is here this morning in the person of the Lord of Jesus Christ because Christ is in you. There's a, there's a oh, he's a long dead pastor. But to, to sum up, he has, he has a, a wonderful work. And part of that work has everything to do with how one of the uh, one of the letter one of the the key doctrines of the epistles is the fact that uh, the church that each individual believer is in Jesus Christ, and he says this. He says the churches are in Christ. The persons are in Christ. They are founded in Christ and preserved in Christ. They are saved and sanctified in Christ. They are rooted and built up and made perfect in Christ. Their ways are ways that be in Christ. Their conversation is a good conversation in Christ. Their faith, their hope, their love, their joy, their whole life is in Christ. They think, they speak, 
They walk in Christ. They labor and suffer. They sorrow and rejoice. They conquer and triumph in the Lord. The fundamental relationships, the primal duties of life have been drawn within the same circle. The man is not without the woman, nor the woman without the man in the Lord. Wives submit to their, submit to their husbands in the Lord, and children obey their parents in the Lord. The broadest distinctions vanish in the common bond of this all-embracing relation. As many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. They are all one in Christ. The influence of it extends over the whole field of action so that whatever we do in word or deed, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. They hold the truth as the truth is in Jesus. The will by which they guide themselves is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning them. Finally, he says, the character of this existence is not changed by that which changes all else, death. Those who have entered on this life in Christ may depart, but they die in the Lord. They sleep in Jesus. They are dead in Christ. And when he shall appear, they will appear. And when he comes, God shall bring with them, and they shall reign, reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. The point is that Jesus Christ is with us. And if there is no unity, we do not have the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not merely unified this morning because we have the same kinship to human responsibility, truth, morality, and love. And all those things are certain important and qualities of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are all good things. But it is not the pattern of thinking, the pattern of clothing, or the pattern of our culture or of our skin that unites us, let alone identifies us. It is the very truth the psalmist articulates here. <laughs> we do not merely live in good things. The gospel calls us to live in Christ. And that is the basis for our unity, not personality, but a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, it is, as the, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, by his doing, you are all in Jesus Christ. And my friends, that is the ultimate sum that the psalmist leaves us with. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. The unity that we have is unity that is forever. Because it is sourced in the person of forever. The unity that we have does not change and is not swayed by the tides. The unity that we have is a person who walks way above the tides. So if you are struggling to maintain the unity that the Spirit produces, my question to you this morning is what in your life is not in the Lord Jesus Christ. My Father, our Father, we ask this morning that you would help us. Lord, help us to continue to strive to maintain the unity that you produce. The unity that is squarely and singularly sourced in the Lord Jesus Christ. He that only has made us one with each other, he has made us one with you. And there is life forever. And so where the Old Testament can have a picture of oil as a wonderful blessing and presence of Yahweh, and the gracious blessing of dew extending from the Mount of Hermon to the Mount of Zion. We see clearly now in the New Testament, post-New Testament era, that the physical manifestation of the blessing of the God of heaven is because we have Christ in us 
producing abundant unity around us. Thank you. Thank you for that unity that we enjoy here. Lord, may it always be so. And may it increase until we see the Lord Jesus Christ come back. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.